their congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever attended any funeral of unbelievers or watched them on TV? What happens in those celebrations or in those please ceremonies? Usually, people assume that the dead went to heaven. People do not even try to know whether the person lived a godly life here on earth. Does people suddenly start thinking that the person who hated God throughout his life went into God's blissful presence? What makes people think that way? Such thoughts happen because people often have a false view of God's holiness. And this false view of God's holiness leads them to have also a false understanding of man's sinfulness. Such false views induce the belief that we deserve salvation simply because we died. A well-known theologian even coined the expression salvation by death. In ancient Israel, a similar view prevailed. Thank you. People believed that they would go to heaven simply because they were physical descendants of Abraham, formal covenant members. Of course, they all followed Jewish customs. They were religious people. Unfortunately for them, that's all that they were, religious people. In this sermon, we recall this belief of the Israelite covenantal automatism. Covenantal automatism. Speaking differently, we could say that covenantal automatism is the belief that one has a guaranteed place in paradise simply because one is a formal Covenant member. Covenantal automatism is the belief that one has a guaranteed place in paradise simply because one is a formal covenant member. Jesus warned the Jews of his days against covenantal automatism. And this warning is the object of our sermon. Today, we will seek to understand and apply Jesus' warning to ourselves. Therefore, it is my privilege to proclaim God's word to us using the following theme. The Lord warns us against covenantal automatism. The Lord warns us against covenantal automatism. And under this theme, we have two points. First, we have a telling question, verses 22 and 23. And then we have a warning parable, verses 24 to 30. A telling question and then a warning parable. Our first point, a telling question. 
In verse 22 we read, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. According to the Gospel of John, Jesus has, as a faithful Jew, went many times to Jerusalem, as the Old Testament commanded him, commanded all the Jews male to go many times per year in order to celebrate various festivals. Unlike John, however, Luke groups all those travels into a single one in which Jesus will embrace the crucifixion for the remissions, for the forgiveness of his people's sins. And this journey to Jerusalem starts in Luke 9, verse 51, as we read. Luke explains that when the days of the crucifixion were approaching, Jesus resolved to go to Jerusalem. From the text context, we understand that our Savior was plowing his way toward the ultimate sacrifice. Luke does not give specific geographical references because he writes to people outside of Palestine. He wants us to know that Jesus is faithfully preaching at every single step of his journey to Jerusalem. Suddenly, on the way, someone asked Jesus a question in public. The person asked, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Why would someone ask such a question? Is it because Jesus' teachings were too hard, causing people to either oppose him or abandon him? We do not know. But one thing certain is that the question had great relevance in Jesus' time. From the time between the Old and the New Testament, from the intertestamental period, this question greatly occupied the Jews. And there were two two camps on the question. A minority of rabbis and a majority. The minority believed that only few Jews will enter paradise. And in contrast, the majority believed that Almost all the Jews will enter paradise, except some very gross sinners like the prostitutes and the tax collectors. But both the minority and the majority, the two groups, the two camps, believe that only few Gentiles will enter paradise. Let us pause for a while, congregation, and examine this concern of the Jews briefly. We know by experience that one does not wonder whether many people will enter paradise when one is unsure of his own salvation. When condemnation harasses the conscience to the point of making the conscience to begin to feel the flame of hell, One is compulsively concerned with one's own salvation, not the salvation of others. Therefore, we understand that the question that this man asked to Jesus shows that most of the Jews of Jesus' time believed that they would enter 
paradise. But why did the Jews have such a belief? They had such a belief because they were suffering from covenantal automatism. They thought that as descendants of Abraham, they had a guaranteed place in heaven. With such a contextual understanding in mind, imagine the scene. And imagine someone thinking, saying to himself, now that we have Jesus, the great rabbi, who preaches with authority and raises the dead, let me ask him this great question. He will certainly have a definitive answer. And one can also imagine the sudden silence gripping the crowd as everyone gives an ear to listen to the answer of the great rabbi and prophet. But as we imagine, as we think about the sin, we realize that nowadays people also at times ask a similar question, whether there will be many people Save. Some people are pessimistic. They think that the future of the church is bleak. Our effort, according to them, to evangelize unbelievers will always have little success. Therefore, we should prepare to go underground. Some others are also optimistic. They think that we should evangelize as much as possible and seek to redeem the culture. They think that we have a breakthrough, a revival at some point of time. And of course, these are the two extremes. There are many more nuances in between. But you, Christian, child of God, what do you think? Do you sometimes wonder whether many people will be saved? And what does your position on this question reveal about your perception of your own salvation? What does your position reveal about your perception of the future of God's people? So far, we have, seen, we have seen that the Jews of Jesus' time were very eager to know whether the people saved would be few. We have analyzed the context and understood that most of the Jews of Jesus' time were certain that they would enter heaven because they were descendants of Abraham, physical descendants of Abraham. Now, what do you think that Jesus will say about the question? Will he side with the minority or will he side with the majority? Let us see Jesus' answer in our second point. A warning parable. Our Lord knows that a sizable part of his audience suffers from covenantal automatism. So he answers by giving a warning parable. 
Jesus starts the parable by urging his audience to strive to enter through the narrow door. We know that he addresses the audience because the verb strive in Greek here is in the plural. In other words, he's saying, be all striving to enter. But what does strive mean? The Greek word corresponding to strive carries with it the imagery of an athletic competition that requires strenuous effort, discipline, courage, and perseverance. It also carries the imagery of a battle. The Apostle Paul uses the same words when he exhorts Timothy to fight the good fight of faith in 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. Thus we understand that the striving that Jesus speaks about here is a demanding, wholehearted, continuous effort. We strive to enter a narrow door. We strive to enter a door. Of which door does Jesus speak? Verse 28 says that it is, that it is the door of the place, of, of, this is the door to the place of fellowship with the three patriarchs in the kingdom of God. Therefore, we understand that the door is the door to paradise. And Jesus describes the door as being narrow. What does it mean? It means that the door is uninviting, restrictive, difficult. It is the kind of door that no natural man can succeed in going through. By using the imagery of the narrow door, Jesus reminds us of the traditional contrast between the narrow ways on which the righteous go the way of paradise and the broad way, the way of the wicked, the way of condemnation. And each one of us seated here today is on one of those two ways. Do you trust in Christ alone for your salvation? Do you know that without him you are nothing? Do you truly seek to conform yourself to him, to submit to him? Then you are on the narrow way. Are you just a church goer? Do you come just for the sake of going? And if you are a youth, do you go to your catechism lesson simply because your parents want you to go? Do you put your Christian court on Sunday, but during the week live as you please? Then you are on the Broadway. But the Lord Jesus invites us all this morning to come to him on the narrow way by renouncing trust in ourselves and putting all our trust in him. In the second sentence of verse 24, Jesus tells the people why they should be striving. They should strive because many will seek to enter but will not be able. Jesus says that many will be desirous to enter 
but they will not enter in the end? Why will they fail in their search? They will fail because they will be faithless, complacent, and ultimately late. They were supposed to seek the Lord when he was near. But they, they, have, they had been complacent while the offer of salvation was available. They realized the danger of the situation only when the house owner closed the door. But who is the, who is the owner of the house? Verse 26 informs us that the house owner is Jesus himself. And this representation of Jesus as the owner of the house is very fitting. One can also render the Greek expression owner of the house as master of the house. Thus we understand that Jesus is the beloved son of God who rules over the household of God. He alone can bring us in. None of our efforts, none of our works will ever suffice. Faith in him, faith in him alone can bring us in. Let us dwell a bit more on this verse and answer some theologically important questions. The Holy Spirit says in Romans that no one seeks after God. In other words, only those who have been granted new birth seek God. Why then does the Lord here speak of unregenerated seekers? When scripture says in Romans 3 verse 11 that no one seeks after God, scripture says that no one truly seeks after God. No one seeks God from true faith. Many want to worship God in their own ways. Some want to worship the God of their own imagination. And others trust their own works. And if we seek God in those ways, we are only apparent seekers. Merely religious people. And this is the kind of person Jesus is speaking about when he says that such people will seek God without success. They are seeking in their own strength. They are seeking without true faith in Christ, the only one who can bring them into paradise. And that's why such seeking is not true seeking. And that's why such seeking fails. Are you of those who seek in vain? Are you a try-harder person? Are you someone who thinks that his works are good enough to please God outside of the Holy Spirit? Continuing the parable, we perceive that the latecomers assume that they belong in the house. So they knock on the door, calling the master to open it. They call him Lord. Maybe they imagine that he was a friend. 
Imagine some people thinking that they are welcome to a friend's celebration. And when they, they come, the door is locked. They can be a bit frustrated, but not too much. Maybe they say to themselves, Oh, this is just a bad coincidence. Things happen, you know. Soon he will come and open the door. So you can picture the surprise of the late comers in the parable when suddenly the master said, I do not know where you come from. Maybe for a while they thought that they had heard him improperly. Then they started saying, how can you say that you do not know us? We spent time in your presence. We ate and drank in your presence, and you preached in our streets. But the master answered again, this time with even greater emphasis. I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of lawlessness. Let us sing together, congregation of the Lord. Who is telling the truth? The master of the house or the late comers? And the answer is that both parties are telling the truth. The late comers fail to understand the master's language. They do not understand that the master is not speaking about mere acquaintance. When the master says that he does not know where they are coming from, they think that the master is speaking about their geographical origin. But the master is speaking about their spiritual origin. He's saying that the latecomers do not belong in his people. They are workers of iniquity, unregenerated people. True, they knew the master but only superficially. In other words, they knew about the master. But such an acquaintance only increases the condemnation because they had the privilege of hearing him preach and eating with him, but they only developed a superficial relationship with him. They were not interested in obeying him, in remaining watchful and prayerful, in disciplining themselves by the power of the Spirit. And the complacency that led them to being outside when the master closed the door was just the last manifestation of their rebellion and faithlessness. Now we wonder, since they do not belong in the house, in Jesus' house, where do they belong? The master assigned them to their proper place, the darkness. It is a place far away from the Lord, a place of utter misery, heart-wrenching sorrows and maddening frustrations. The, torment, the tormented smoke there rises continuously. And there the worms do not die. That place is hell. And as if the sufferings of hell were not enough, the master said that the latecomers will be allowed to see God's, the, the bliss of God's house, but only from afar. 
that we see the patriarchs, the prophets, the people with whom they identify themselves their entire lives. They will see the bliss of the, her- of, the, of, the, uh, of the heroes of faith, but only from afar, without the hope of ever enjoying it. Because God will be actively hostile toward them. And as if the picture was not galling enough, the master rubs salt in the wound. Jesus says that the hated and despised uncircumcised Gentile will be gathered from all over the earth to celebrate in the kingdom. Remember what we said in the first point, that almost all the Jews, even those that believe that they will enter paradise, they believe that only few Gentiles will enter paradise. So you can imagine how this picture can be galling to them. While the Gentiles from all over the world will be gathered to celebrate in the kingdom, in contrast, those who all their life long thought that they were children of the kingdom will be expelled. What a sad and scary reversal. Jesus the Master concludes the story by referring again to that reversal when he says that some who are last, who are first, please, will be last, and some who are last will become first. Who are the first? The first are the Israelites, the covenant people, those who had the benefit of hearing Jesus preach. But instead of following the patriarchs and Moses in embracing Jesus, many chose to reject him, relying on their covenant membership. Consequently, at Jesus' return, they will be condemned to their great surprise as unbelievers. Who are the last? The last are those outside of the kingdom. The publicans, the Gentiles, the prostitutes, those who were far away outside of the commonwealth of Israel, without God and hope in the world. Those people we hear the gospel and set their hope on Christ alone, thereby receiving salvation. Well, we have heard a warning parable that Jesus gave as an answer when people asked him, will those save be few? We saw that Jesus did not take a camp. He was neither pessimistic nor optimistic. He didn't side with the minority, nor did he side with the majority. In essence, Jesus answered the presupposition underlying the question. He said this, What does it matter to you to know how many people will enter paradise? You do not be complacent. Be constantly working to make your calling and election sure, lest you be deeply disappointed on the judgment day. Although given more than 2,000 years ago, 
this warning parable of Jesus is still relevant today. You see, the Jews were physical descendants of Abraham, the people of the covenant by blood. Like them, we too are the people of the covenant. Jews face throughout their history the temptation of covenantal automatism. And in the Gospels of Luke and John, the Holy Spirit tells us that the Jews were saying to themselves, we have Abraham as our father. Many assume that because of their privileged status, status as descendant of the patriarchs, they had a guaranteed entrance into paradise. Many were following men's commandments instead of God's word. And that's why they could not accept Jesus' teachings. They did not set their hope on him as the Messiah. And likewise, many of us exhibit the symptoms of covenantal automatism. Many of us tend to think that we have a guaranteed entrance in the kingdom simply because we were born in the covenant. Sure, we are a special people. We are set apart because we receive the preaching of the word Sunday after Sunday. We are sanctified, set apart because we belong to congregations to whom the Lord made so many promises of salvation. Whenever a child in our congregation is, is baptized, we see we, those promises being renewed to, to us. But those promises come with obligations. It is a package. In other words, we must regularly reckon the fact that the covenant is conditional. Even if Christ fulfills the conditions for us. Otherwise, what will happen? Otherwise, all those privileges can turn into our condemnation. We risk finding ourselves among the covenant children expelled on the last day. How do we reckon in practice that the covenant is conditional? We do so by trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. If we rely on anything else for our salvation, we are in danger of being cast out on the last day. Genuine trust in Christ has practical implications, such as embracing all of God's promises, all that God promised to us in the gospel. And such an embrace manifests itself as belief first in the correct doctrines. And such belief is accompanied by a deep love for Christ, which makes us desirous to glorify God in all that we do, to walk in obedience and do good works out of gratefulness. Those who trust Christ in that way show that they know him Deeply, genuinely, and such people have been grafted into Christ by true faith. Dear people of God, 
Let us pray that God may open our, our hearts to grow in gratefulness for our privilege of being born in the covenant. Let us pray that from that gratefulness may overflow a constant deepening of our relationship with Christ. Conclusion. What is the sum, the summary of what we have just heard? And the summary is this. Let us not worry much about how many people will enter paradise. Let us worry instead about the temptation of covenantal automatism. The temptation of relying on something other than Christ. Let us pray that our Heavenly Father may incline our hearts to hearken the warnings of the Son. Let us pray that the Holy Spirit, for the Son's sake, may, may set our hearts ablaze with love and gratefulness for the privilege that we have received. Let us pray that out of that gratefulness, we may continually be striving to enter the narrow door. Amen. In response to the preaching of God's word, we will sing together, we continue with Psalm 78, this time with stanzas 11 through 13.